Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host Sara Davison shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Natalie Page. Natalie focuses on advocating for a revolutionized response to domestic abuse in the family courts. Natalie founded the campaign for survivor family justice, hashtag the court said, reaching half a million survivors each month. Working with survivor families directly, Natalie tutors at her social enterprise Survivor Family Network, providing courses and guidance for survivor families working towards safer outcomes in the family court. Natalie dreams of a world where all survivor families can enjoy secure futures without domestic abuse. So I am super excited to welcome Natalie Page to the show. Welcome, Natalie. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great and I'm so pleased that you're joining us because I have so many listeners that contact me every week about exactly what we're going to talk about today. So problems with the family courts. So tell us a little bit about what you do, Natalie. Right, well, I'm a campaigner and I I founded the campaign hashtag the court said. You can search this on any social media platform to find this. Um, We reach about half a million domestic abuse survivors each and every month through the campaign. And we are campaigning for a revolutionised and transformed response to domestic abuse in the family court. Tell me how that works. What are you seeing? What are the big issues that people are contacting you about? Well, a lot of um, people find that when they enter the family court with a domestic abuse case, so to be very specific here, we are talking about relationships that have broken down as a result of domestic abuse. So predominantly, the people that are interacting and engaging with our campaign are women. So most oftentimes, we're helping mothers who have entered the family court system um, after leaving a domestic abuse relationship. And what they find when they enter that system is that there's a real culture of denial, first and foremost, that that domestic abuse even occurs, which is actually really quite at odds with the rates of domestic abuse in wider society, being close to one in three uh, women experiencing domestic abuse in their lifetime. Yet, if you approach the family court system and ask them how much domestic abuse even occurs, you will see a vastly downplayed figure. So one of the first problems that mothers in particular, I'm not saying this doesn't happen to fathers because it does um, happen to all domestic abuse survivors. However, particularly mothers find that the first thing that affects them when they enter the family court system is they're met with this culture of disbelief that domestic abuse even occurs. I do think that uh, lack of training in the judiciary is quite responsible for it. It is an old boys culture um, within the the judicial institution. I don't think that helps. I don't think there's enough diversity in the judiciary. It doesn't really represent wider society. 
which actually it should do because we're one of their main stakeholders. But they do tend to have a, a very disdainful view of, um, of people who have gone through and endured domestic abuse. And there is quite a culture of victim blaming in the family court. So victims will often be asked after they've left, well, why didn't you leave? You know, why didn't you leave sooner? <laughs> um, whereas actually we know that the victims will endure quite a few instances usually before they actually take that major step of leaving. So there seems to be a knowledge gap and an empathy gap as well. I find that shocking in this day and age, especially, I mean, now with the pandemic hitting the front news of domestic abuse rising in the UK and around the world. So I know that I'm the patron of the Dash charity and they've seen over 300% increase in calls coming into them during COVID times. So there definitely is a rise. Are you seeing that as well? Are you seeing an increase in domestic abuse cases coming through to you? Absolutely. At the beginning of the first lockdown, our caseload went up by 67% overnight and just stayed there at that increase. However, because we are not frontline, we're dealing with family courts. So that usually um, by the time you're in front of a judge, that's usually a couple of months later after leaving. So we see a slightly delayed um, reaction to what the frontline are reporting as, as big spikes in the, the amount of contacts that they've got coming through to them. Um, we saw uh, just a week on week increase, week in, week out throughout COVID. And that's showing no signs of slowing down for us because as the restrictions are lifting, we're still getting that wave of victims that are coming through from COVID coming through to us. What specifically are you seeing coming through? What sort of cases, what are the most common situations that you're dealing with? Really, it's kind of twofold. The first um, situation, as I've kind of already explained, which is, is this culture of disbelief. So um, usually they, uh, people enter the, the court system as a survivor of domestic abuse and they're met with quite a hostile environment, that's sort of disbelieving, um, quite victim blaming. Um, even with evidence, they can be, you know, quite hard to convince that, that this has even happened. If you don't manage to to overcome that hurdle, you can be very open to a weaponized parental alienation allegation. Now, we're not saying that parental alienation never occurs because we are talking specifically about domestic abuse cases. So within domestic abuse cases where there has been a pattern of violence and coercive control in the relationship, when that couple splits up and they end up in the family court, the perpetrator of that violence will, around about 95% of the time, allege, falsely allege parental alienation and say that the allegations and evidence of abuse is evidence of usually the mother wanting to, to stop or control or limit his, his contact. What happens is, so you've got a mother there potentially, I mean, sometimes it is fathers as well. So we have, you know, it can happen to both, obviously, but I know predominantly these cases tend to be mothers as, as the victims of this. How does it show up then? So what is happening in the home and what is the mother doing? She's going to court saying what exactly? Usually the mothers who are, who are in the court system will be entering court with evidence of a pattern of abuse. So that can be anything from text evidence, financial evidence for economic abuse, 
there could be recordings, there could be all kinds of evidence, it could be police reports, even Marat's stating that the mother is at high risk of homicide can be ignored by the family court as well. So we're talking about some really high risk cases here, whereas um, in the public discourse, they uh, quite like to dismiss us as being a bit tit for tat. Um, however, I think that's really quite basic and we are actually talking about some really high risk cases where these mothers and children are actually in danger and sometimes the, the children are also being harmed themselves because domestic abuse doesn't actually stop when you walk out of the door. It continues post-separation and in the court arena it provides a very willing vehicle for uh, a perpetrators to continue uh, to abuse and control through the child arrangements. You're in front of a judge and they've got that evidence that you're talking about, then it's quite clear for them to see what's going on. Um, it is, yes. You know, in my view, the, the cases that we have and, and that we've seen, that it is extremely clear that there's a pattern of abuse going on. However, this culture of disbelief does mean that they almost raise the standard and the burden of proof to one that I would say is even beyond the standard in the criminal court arena. Obviously the civil system and the family court operate on a slightly lower burden of proof so it's on balance of probability and the criminal court will operate on beyond reasonable doubt. So there's slightly two uh, different standards and burdens of proof. So I've seen cases that more than exceed the burden of proof of on the balance of probability and would probably meet beyond reasonable doubt standard, yet they will be ignored largely by the family court. And a lot of survivors report that they don't think that their judge even read it. They don't even want to look at it. Some of them will refuse to hold fact finds. Uh, fact finding hearing is a way that they can deal with the allegations and this is where they try the allegations. So it's a little bit like a trial. Quite often, judges will just refuse to even hold one. So victims never even get the chance to give their best evidence. There are a lot of cases where it's hard to prove. Coercive control is something that's relatively, if you take an individual event, I suppose could be seen as something quite small. But if you stack it all together and you know, know and understand what abuse is, that is exactly what it is over a prolonged period of time. But I think, in fact, finding hearings, you're only allowed to put together three or four, maybe five things. And that isn't enough, uh, quite often in a coercive control case. And I know I've spoken to many lawyers about this. Um, and there was an episode I did with Rachel Horman, who talks a lot about how it's very difficult to prove these things in court. So it does beg the question, how can it be a crime if it's impossible to prove? So that is something that I hear a lot, actually, in my coaching clinic. So what can people do in this situation, Nassi? I mean, I think a lot of people go into the court system expecting justice, expecting that when they've put their case forward, that the judge will be able to see what's what and they will get justice. And, you know, I know that that isn't always the case, right? In the family court, it isn't the case, um, certainly. I mean, there, there's vast problems. I mean, they published the harm report um, about a year ago. And in that report, there was a lot of reforms promised um, that have not yet been delivered. It's very much business as usual in the family court. So my 
advice to, in particular, uh, domestic abuse survivors entering the court is, is learn how to protect your position. You'd never come to court without a statement, ever. And gather as much evidence as you can before you leave the relationship. I mean, if we're lucky enough to be talking to anyone who's thinking about going, it's, it's great if people can get their ducks in the road before they do. Um, because often, you know, survivors will find that evidence uh, may or may not be destroyed, hidden or just removed. And so I think the most important thing to protect your position is actually to demonstrate really, really good parenting and in particular good mothering. Because you are walking into court on an equal legal footing with the perpetrator in your case, no matter what they've done. The court will usually see that contact with both parents is in the best interest of the children again no matter what they've done uh, that's an awful lot for a survivor of abuse to get their head around because they know it isn't safe they know the perpetrator better than anybody else in that room and it's very very difficult when someone is then telling you that you would be breaking the law if you didn't put your children at that level of risk so to avoid being at risk of the more brutal and blunt end of this system, um, a good way to do that is to really learn how they work, really learn how to communicate with the court and really learn what you've got to do to, to demonstrate um, these patterns of behaviour that we're talking about with coercive control, which are very difficult to prove. There are um, noises from the judiciary that they're moving away from an incident-led model where you've only got, like you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, where you've got a couple of incidents that you can prove, but on their own, they don't look enough. Um, but when you put it as part of a wider pattern, it's, it tells a very, very different story. They are um, making noises about moving to a slightly more inquisitorial approach that allows survivors to tell their whole story rather than just the, the violent incident part of their story or the incidents that they can prove. Because if you've got an incident that you can prove and you've been in a domestic abuse relationship, most survivors will tell you that there'll be 10 more that they couldn't ever prove in a court of law that happened. Uh, just because of lack of evidence, but they still happen. And, you know, it's, it's very, very difficult because, you know, you're going in there with a snapshot of your whole relationship and trying to demonstrate the risk that you've been put at, and yet you haven't got the space in, or, in which to do that. So learning how to talk in the court's language, um, not using jargon, just in what they're looking for, what they want to see from mums in particular is good mothering because it's very easy for a mum to become very unsettled after um, domestic abuse when faced with the perpetrator again in the courtroom. After going through crimes and, and the mums are expected then to be completely uh, okay with that. They might not have special measures in place, you know, and it can be quite a, a, an intimidating experience so it's learning how to overcome feeling very intimidated and learning how to deal with what is going on in the case and what is going on in that courtroom. What I see is people going into court thinking as I said before they're going to get justice and then going through this process which is very very difficult having to face the abuser in court and 
having to defend themselves against lies that you know they have alienated their children or turned them against the father when actually you know it genuinely is something that's going on with their kids and and it can affect all ages but sometimes the stories I hear are sexual abuse that the children have talked about or you know children coming home with injuries or just being very frightened to go and see their other parent how does a mother stand up to that if she's worried about the safety of her child she's going in there but she's met by disbelief as you say and then she's coming home how do you cope with those things are you struggling to cope with your breakup or divorce are you feeling devastated heartbroken sad and anxious if so please know that you are not alone and there is help available Sarah Davison, best known as The Divorce Coach, and her team of accredited coaches are here to offer you the support and guidance you need to navigate all areas of your breakup, take back your control, and start feeling happy again. Sarah will show you how to dial down those controlling negative emotions, unhook from your ex, get back in the driving seat of your life and design a future you are excited to live. Sarah has a range of solutions to support any breakup, including free guides, one-to-one coaching, her Heartbreak to Happiness virtual retreats, live retreats, and you can even train to be a breakup and divorce coach with Sarah too. Visit www.saradavison.com today and start to feel happy again. How does a mother stand up to that? If she's worried about the safety of her child, she's going in there, but she's met by disbelief, as you say, and then she's coming home. How do you cope with those things? Um, That's a really, really difficult thing to cope with because, for example, when a child discloses that they've been through abuse, most people have the idea that if a child, say, told a, a social worker and that they'd been abused, that the child would be taken seriously, that people listen to children. When children are, are saying something has gone that badly wrong at home, that, that you know people are expecting to be heard when they have the immense courage to say something like that. However, what this system says when a child discloses something is not, um, we're really sorry that happened to you, let's make you safe. They say, who put you up to saying that? And then the eyes will be looking at mum. Because even in the definition of parental alienation, it says predominantly mothers perpetrate this. What we find actually is that 95% of, um, of people who are engaging with our campaign are mothers and they have been accused of parental alienation when in fact they, are, they have been going through domestic abuse. So it's very difficult to get the children heard in a system that is not prepared to listen. About the right, though, for a child to have their voice heard. Surely the Children's Act says that children shouldn't be forced to go somewhere they don't feel safe, right? This is true. This is very, very true. But the best interest principle, which is the overriding best interest in all children's cases, so it's the overriding concept here is the best interests of the child and they view the best interests of the child as being served by contact with both parents at any cost. 
contact at any cost. It's just so upsetting to hear that that is actually going on. Yeah, I mean, that just sounds like something from a different country in a different time, maybe not not our country today. But I mean, I also, I mean, I've been speaking to people around the world and I, I hear this coming up in Australia, in the States. It's not just UK based, is it? No, it's not. This is a global situation, basically you know, in particular women and children's rights certainly are being effectively rolled back by the actions of the family court because human rights aren't really considered and children's rights are, I think, even further down that list. The saying is father's rights trump children's rights and parental alienation trumps domestic abuse. So are you seeing that weaponized by, by, I guess, lawyers, legal firms or perpetrators being the mouthpiece for this now? Are you seeing it as a tactic now that is being used more often? Yeah, and it is a well-known tactic. Like I said, 95% of people that are engaging with our campaign have been accused of alienation when they've got evidence of abuse. It's interesting as well as when parental alienation is alleged. For example, Adrian Barnett um, did a study a couple of years ago and she found that parental alienation was alleged in response to allegations of domestic abuse or evidence of domestic abuse. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm doing a a call for cases. Um, So I'm having a little look and I put a survey out and I'm asking survivors, okay, when did you put your allegations of abuse into the court? And when were the parental alienation allegations made? And very uniformly, in fact, unanimously, it came back that parental alienation was later alleged and it is definitely in response to evidence or allegations of domestic abuse. I find it shocking that there's not more that is, you know, being done. Do you see things changing at the moment? Are you hopeful? Is there anything that we can do to help? We've made quite good progress in highlighting the issues. Uh, a few years ago, this was barely really talked about, uh, whereas now survivors generally are a lot more aware. So I think we've made real inroads there. In regards to change, The the harm report was published um, a year ago and there was a a whole raft of reforms promised there at the moment. I think that is sitting on a desk somewhere in the Ministry of Justice gathering dust. Um, Recently in the domestic abuse bill, the Lords put in a raft of amendments that would have actually been really progressive and good for survivors. Uh, They were recommending that it was legislated that judges receive mandatory uh, training in domestic abuse. Uh, There was a serial perpetrators register amendment in there amongst others. When it came back to the Commons um, on the 15th of April, by a unanimous Tory vote, all of those those amendments uh, were rejected. They were rejected. They are no longer going to be legislated. These judges are still inadequately trained and it's not going to be mandatory that they are trained in domestic abuse. They're hearing cases that they don't even understand. Um, It makes no sense to me whatsoever. But the real worry here is the reforms that were arising from the harm report published a year ago is in the same hands of the same people who just rejected all of those amendments. 
this is like shocking isn't it i mean the fact is that we're making progress there things are starting to happen people are hearing it and then they're rejecting it i just don't understand why what are the consequences of this what's happening to these women and children as a consequence of it not being heard consequences of not being heard is is that at the bare minimum they will be subjected to an ongoing pattern of post-separation abuse that's what happens at the bare minimum at worst children do get murdered hashtag the court said uh, leader in Canada Jennifer her daughter was murdered about a year ago by the father on a court-ordered visit his contact was just about to be reduced on the grounds that he wasn't safe, but the judge allowed one last unsupervised visit. And that's when they plunged to their deaths from the top of a cliff in Canada in the snow. She was four. There's been child homicides in this country and all around the world on court-ordered contact. So it really is no exaggeration when we say that they will have blood on their hands for rejecting amendments like mandatory training in domestic abuse that kind of training could save children's lives so what happens next Natalie what happens next the struggle continues we're taking um a short bit of time now just to sort of regroup and see where we're headed next because the major work with the domestic abuse bill has obviously now finished so we're looking to see what needs to happen next We do have some good stuff coming up. Um, I'm writing a new training course at the moment, and that will be to help professionals and also survivors who want a deeper understanding of what's going on in the family court. So it will help people navigate it. um, So an advanced family court navigation course. We don't hear the stories, though, do we? Because the family courts, you're not allowed to talk about what's happened to you in the family courts. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. I mean, I spent nine years in the family court and I can't really tell you anything about it or I'd be breaking the law. So there's this culture and veil of silence all around the issues in family court, which makes it very difficult to campaign about, very difficult to speak about. So therefore, like, because no one's talking about it, the first thing that most survivors say to me, still to this day, after all the awareness that we've been raising, they will still say to me, I didn't have a clue what was going to happen when I first walked into court. I thought we were going to get justice. That is the the challenge that because of the secrecy, then no one finds out about it. So it's enabled. And the people within the system, I guess, are making money and, uh, you know, what's their incentive to change, I guess, as we're seeing time and time again. I, d- I just can't fathom why it would be blocked. On what basis are they thinking that that's okay to block it? And what would their reasons be? Did, did they say what their reasons were for blocking it? Um, the usual reason for um, evading progress is um, they will usually fall back on the arguments of judicial discretion and judicial independence. So the judicial independence is one of the pillars of democracy. So to undermine that would be seen as anti-democratic. So the judges basically are able to operate with total discretion and no scrutiny whatsoever. Um, So it just sort of leaves the door open to this kind of silo working where nobody's talking um, to each other about the issues and these injustices are just going on wholesale. They're not trained um, in domestic abuse meaningfully. They really don't know what it looks like.
and they have just been given the independence to just let that continue basically find it incredible that you don't have to be trained in the job you're doing which is potentially a life-saving decision that you're making or not so I mean it's just utterly you know soul-destroying to hear that that happened very recently okay so you're doing some amazing work though Natalie and you know I I watch you from behind the scenes and I'm cheering you every step because I know that you're you're supporting so many people tell us a bit about your programs and just how many people you're supporting I know you've got a huge following haven't you yeah we do I do have quite a large following all over the world actually I mean the amount of people that are affected by this issue is just it's just astounding and you know the more we reach the more we find and it's just sort of growing bigger and bigger and bigger so we do um, put people on our court confidence course um, which tells people exactly what to expect and how to handle the family court journey and how to stay safe and secure a safer outcome, learning all the while how to protect your position in a very difficult system. So we funnel quite a, quite a few people in, in England and Wales through the Court Confidence course. Our next course is going to be more um, suitable for a global audience when I wrote this course a year ago we were we were really just dealing with England England and Wales in terms of the caseload but now we've got it coming in from everywhere so we're having to create new services which are just about to launch soon so keep an eye out for that I'll be talking about that on social media really really soon oh brilliant so where can people find you Natalie they can find us on social media just search hashtag the court said into any social media platform and you you will find us um, you can find us on the web at thecourtsaid.org and you can find our training course at www.courtconfidence.com. It's an amazing programme and it's very reasonably priced. So it's something that you know a lot of people can just tap into and give them that extra support when you really need it. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the law firms out there, whether all the legal professionals, if it's not mandatory to have training in this, then it's up to the individual to to own it and take responsibility. And I guess there's also the fact that some legal professionals will say they're experts, but maybe not quite as expert as they make out they are. So getting educated yourself, I think, is really a great way to take back as much control as you can over this process and go in you know, armed with the information and clarity of what you're about to face, because I think mm. some of those situations you might instinctively react in one way, which isn't going to help you. So I think, you know, understanding the system, the right way to react isn't sometimes the instinctive way that we'd react. So that's why this is important. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, actually, because uh, family court is just like a different planet with its whole own other language. And everything feels very counterintuitive and it, it just feels like a parallel universe where all that you thought was right and normal just doesn't exist that way. Um, so when I say learning to talk the court's language, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about overcoming um, triggers because they will be misunderstood by the system it's talking about how you position an incident and how it's affected you without them uh, punishing you for it uh, so it's very much about like walking a, a, a tightrope um, to try and get some justice without putting your foot wrong and, and falling into um, some horrible 
see a victim blaming and, and sort of punishment for it and everything feels counterintuitive so you really need someone to hold your hand through that process and say look this is going to feel really wrong but you've got to do it because it's going to have this positive effect on your case so that's what the course does it takes people through all the really uh, nuanced and counterintuitive areas and also um, covers like what abusers will throw at you in the courtroom as well what they accuse when they say it how they do it um, so you think you know what tactics are going to be pulled on you and and most of our reviews say stuff like um, scarily accurate <laughs> or um, this was invaluable because it really helped me protect my position most people will do a lot better in the courtroom once they've been on this course and um, we've got a really good success rate and it's independently five star rated so whilst the information does sound counterintuitive and it doesn't sound like it it, it should be that way well that's because it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the way it is the system is broken but we can only work in the parameters that we have and the, the parameters that the justice system gives us so working within those parameters can feel very at odds with everything that you sort of know or did believe about the justice system and getting justice. Such important information. Thank you, Natalie. I, I just think hopefully people listening, wherever you are in the world, it will have maybe opened your eyes or put you in a position where you are going to be better informed if you are going on that journey. So do reach out and find Natalie. Um, for some more help and support. So Natalie, just my last question, which I ask everybody who comes on my show as my guest. Um, the podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. I think it's really important to know what happiness is for you so that if you are on the journey, no matter what stage you're on right now, you know what it is so you can recognize it and enjoy it when you find it. So what is happiness for you? Happiness for me was actually recovery. It was recovery from my experience and embracing the recovery journey. Also, biscuits. Biscuits make me happy. <laughs> I love a good biscuit. What's your favourite biscuit? I like all of them, to be honest. Chocolate chip <laughs> cookies, I think, are my weakness. Oh, I love them. I love them. I'm with you on that. Well, thank you ever so much, Natalie, for joining me. You've been an amazing guest and hopefully I know you will have helped many, many listeners out there. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me and I'll speak to you soon. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head on over to thecourtsaid.org to find out more about Natalie's work. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to win a free ticket to one of Sarah's virtual retreats. The retreats are a transformative combination of live webinars with Sara herself, coupled with empowering online video programs designed to help you cope better with your breakup and start feeling happy again. For more details, head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com, where you can also get a copy of Sara's free gift. Thank you and join us again on the next episode for another dose of Heartbreak to Happiness.